Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 116. Uh, very surprising that we're starting right now. A moment ago, I, I started the show, and Josh jumped like I threw a spider in his face. I jumped 10 feet up in the air, Yeah, which is something I wasn't aware that I could do. Yeah, but uh, as it turns out, you're very you're just a jumpy little guy. Yeah, so I'm, I think I'm a superhero now, probably. You just, you just need Jump to be... Man. Jump man, that's yeah. I think that's yeah. I feel like I like that one. I feel like something like the startler, because <laughs> then because people startle you and you can jump over entire buildings. Mm. So if there's like a there's like a cat in a tree and someone needs to save it and it's yeah. like oh, jump man or the startler, the startler. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the startler. I wish you could get up there and and jump to get it. And I say, well, I can't jump that height unless. Unless somebody's kidding. And then they would throw something in my face and I'd right. jump up there. But then I would forget about the cat. Yeah, yeah. And I'd come right back down. Then I'd be expecting it for the next time. So I just have to move on to the next city. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that is... Uh, that's a heck of a superhero. I, I want to see that. Let me, Marvel, let me get write, on it. Let me write all this down. Uh, let's see. Michael Fassbender is the startler. So, um, Okay. Moving on from that, uh, just a reminder to everybody that this, so that you may notice, hey, it's very strange that this episode is coming on a Sunday. Um, we are trying to make up for lost time. We're trying to make sure that you have a solid number of Halloween Times episodes. And so... Uh, just being fair to you. Exactly. You know, we don't want to... I. It's not your fault that I went to Chicago and we couldn't record one week. So uh, we did record an episode a few days ago. About, uh, oddly enough, it is the guest. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, about the guest. And so that is available at more than one lesson.com. You can also find it in iTunes. Uh, this episode is going to be about Jim Jarmusch's only lovers left alive. But before we get there, we inexplicably have a sponsor. So, uh, don't get me wrong. He's, it's not a bad idea to sponsor the show. <laughs> it's just not a thing I ever expect. So this episode is brought to you by To Be a Man, A Christian's Guide to Being a Gentleman. Uh, recent articles on this website include discussions about tattoos, bar terminology, everything you need to know about blazers, and... Uh, Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a bit of a typo here. Uh, and the problems with picking and choosing the parts of the Bible you like and leaving out the parts that you don't. So there's a lot going on there. Um, the guy who uh, runs it, Joe, he he also has it's, – it's very interesting. He has a lot of uh, artistically minded things like he talks about movies that uh, men should see, 
poems that men should know. Uh, it's oh, that's cool. It really tries to to branch out. So, hmm. uh, so yeah, if you want to read those articles, just click on the ad at morethanonelesson dot com, and you'll get right there. Something to add to your RSS feed if you do that. Sort Absolutely. Of thing. I don't know anybody that does that with blogs. Really, I know I know people that do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we have that available to people on hey. at More Than One Lesson, but I've never known if anybody yeah. ever actually clicks on it. It's uh, in theory, it should be super convenient. I, I tried it with a couple things, but I was trying it with uh, the sites I was trying it with. It didn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, like I was trying to look for job things through Craigslist. Oh, okay. But Craigslist doesn't. It like posts later, and it's this is boring. But there's a whole weird thing where. Each city's Craigslist acts as if it's its own blog, hmm. so you would have to like have a feed from any any different city that you were looking at, you know, postings from, which hmm. makes it super confusing. That is uh, boring. Yeah. So we are going to move on now. Um, oh, did I welcome in my co-host Josh Long? Did I don't I? know. Okay. Um, welcome, Josh Long. Does hey, he, thanks. Doesn't he usually say something? No, not really. Okay. Well, he good. talks, but he doesn't really say anything. Yeah, how, how much can there be? Um, so, okay. Now that we've uh, made fun of my co-host, uh, let's it's get... officially time to start. Yeah, let's get to the episode. <laughs> uh, I'm try- Actually, I'm trying to think if there's any, um, if there's any other announcements. Uh, nothing off the top of my head. I will say that next week's episode, wh- which by the time this goes up will be in only a few days, uh, Josh is going to be sitting it out. Sure will be. We'll be talking about The Conjuring, and uh, our good friend Reed Lackey will be here to talk about that film with me. Um, I'll be out on the golf course in the meantime. Is that true? Uh, I don't know. I've never played golf before, so it's probably not true, but who knows? You've never played golf before? Uh, mini golf I've played. That's not the same. Isn't it? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's it just, is golf. It's just bigger, isn't it? It's the same thing, but yeah, bigger. They, they've got big windmills and castles and stuff. And right. They're just giant. They're huge. I mean, if they didn't, it would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? Eh, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need something to, to draw the eye. Every time I turn on TV and professional golf is on, I've always just missed the part where they're at the windmill yeah. or something. Cause it, it doesn't seem to be anywhere in sight. Yeah. You tune in just in time for like the tedious moment in between, you know, the, the, the big caves and the windmills and someday, someday I'll catch it. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So we will move on. So the thing about Halloween times, Josh, stop looking at my DVD wall and pay attention. All right. I'm talking to you. I was just curious. It, it, you you're here every week. I know, but what were you looking for? I don't know. Were you looking for a movie directed by you? It's there. Is it? Yeah. It's in the F's. Where are the F's? Are they on the other side? They're right behind you. Oh, it's almost directly behind my head. Yeah. So, um, the thing about Halloween times is that, yes, in theory, it would mean that we just talk about horror movies. And that has been the case in the past, uh, in some, but not always. You know, last year we talked about, for example, Warm Bodies, which is not a horror movie. Last week we talked about, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, two episodes ago we talked about Coraline, which is not a horror movie, though there are moments that are scary. Uh, more than anything, I just want to, we want to embrace all the different things Halloween times can be, uh, mm-hmm. anything that's a bit macabre, um, and maybe a bit, uh, disturbing. And this week is certainly that this is not a horror movie, but it does have vampires in it. Uh, 
What's that? It's Twilight Breaking it's Dawn. It's absolutely. I do find that film rather frightening, <laughs> um, but only emotionally. Ah, yeah. So we are talking about Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, starring Tilda Swinton, Tom Hiddleston, uh, and a number of others. But those are the, the two main characters. So a little bit of history. I'm not sure if I have ever on the show... Uh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever mentioned my love of Jim Jarmusch. I don't know if he you have. Is, he is one of my favorite directors. In fact, one could say he's in my top 10. Uh, I know that because I made that list recently. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what it is, uh, that drew me towards him. Um, I think I first discovered him through Tom Waits, who he has worked with in the past. Uh, but there's something about the way he makes films that just appeals to me. Um, back when I was, you know, back when I was a, uh, an aspiring filmmaker, uh, you know, I, and maybe you, maybe you uh, experienced this as well. There are the people, there are the filmmakers that you love. Then there are filmmakers that you probably also love, but they're more. You could cite them as like an influence. Okay. Like yeah. for example. I love Orson Welles, but I never wanted to make movies the way he makes movies. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody like a Robert Altman and John Cassavetes, Jim Jarmusch, Sidney Lumet, that's a little closer to like, those are the, those are pretty much the big four that I would say that's an influence. That's Mm -hmm. what I want to do. And Jim Jarmusch, especially, Mm um, who, I don't know. I could see people watching his films and thinking that they are boring. His, His films, I think are often quite funny, but in a very dry way. Um, but if you know what to look for, uh, they can be very funny, but they can also be very, uh, emotionally resonant, even though people tend not to emote very much. Um, and he just manages to, he writes in a way that he almost writes around things instead of directly, uh, addressing them, which is a thing that I like because he still manages to get his point across, Um, and just the way he, where he puts the camera, he tends to just, in some cases, he'll just set it and let the actors, uh, explore the space. But in other cases, it depends on, on the story he's telling, you know, for example, the film we're talking about today, only lovers left alive. Um, the, the camera is actually fairly active. I mean, from the very beginning, the camera is just spinning and making you pretty cool. Yeah. It makes me a little dizzy. It does. But, uh, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was with a great deal of anticipation that I went to go see Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a movie that Jim Jarmusch made about vampires. Um, (laughs) Which, if you're unfamiliar with Jim Jarmusch's uh, category, I've forgotten the word again. Filmography? Filmography. I feel like there's another word. Anyway, um, if if you're familiar, catalog might have been what I was going to say. That's what I thought you were going to say. I thought I was going to start with a C. Um, That's not really a... It's atypical, but not totally atypical. Right. Because he he tends to go back and forth between these ones that are just kind of very regular seeming, like a, maybe a down by law or, uh, or a, uh, stranger than paradise, stranger than paradise, things like that. And then you have something like ghost dog or dead man or dead man. Exactly. And this is, so this one fits more into that second category. Yeah. Where he's, but the thing is, whether, you know, Dead Man is a Western, Ghost Dog is, I mean, it's a number of different genres. Um, they are always, he brings the genre to him. 
uh, and the the movies that he makes are undeniably his, uh, which is something that I really like. I, yeah. And so I was excited about the idea of him uh, taking these two actors that I really like and exploring what it must be like to be a vampire. And so that's interesting to me already. But then the idea of through that Jim Jarmusch lens, because his characters tend to uh, act very cool and and sort of affected and, and they sort of distance themselves from other people emotionally. So I thought, how interesting would it be if those characters were vampires and were at a remove from humanity already? Mm-hmm. What would that look like? So mm-hmm. I was very excited to see it. Uh, when I, you and I saw the film together mm-hmm. and afterwards it was, uh, I won't say I was disappointed with the film cause there are a lot of great things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple things here and there that just sort of, that sort of bothered me that I felt like were from a writing standpoint, a little bit beneath him, uh, Jim Jarmusch, but by and large, it's a film that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I think it's visually gorgeous i love the use of music and i think the performances are are uniformly uh really watchable and really engaging so uh we'll go more into detail in a moment but uh but what was your what was your initial you can talk about expectation uh and then your initial reaction to the film Mm -hmm. well my my knowledge of jim jarmusch is more limited to that first category that we talked about i haven't seen ghost dog or dead man i haven't seen Mm -hmm. any of his that deal with a more uh, maybe fantastical or supernatural or genre elements. Okay. Um, uh, so, so I was interested to see where this would go. And, um, also I thought it would, might be fun to see Tom Hiddleston out of his blockbuster, <laughs> not as Loki. Yeah. Uh, I thought that might be nice. And I think he does a, I think he does a very good job and shows, shows some range and Tilda Swinton is an actress that, you know, I, I feel like I wouldn't list her on, if I were saying who were some of my favorite actresses, I don't know if I'd say her, but at the same, at the same time, I don't, I can't think of performances of hers that I didn't like. Yeah. Meanwhile, she has turned in a lot of performances that I think are great. I do love yeah. her and Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. I, she was in Snowpiercer this year and I yeah. thought she was great in that. And I liked her in this as well. She... There's something about her that stands out regardless. Yeah. Like she has a, she has a, a way about her that's a little eerie, a little strange. And I think she knows how to use that. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's an otherworldly quality that, to her that makes you think like, well, it was only a matter of time before she played a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, totally. I can't believe I'm, uh, we need to talk about Kevin as a film that she was in and she's yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah, exactly. But. Um, and that was the same sort of thing. You know what? She has a look to her. Mm-hmm. Just her look is a little bit eerie. Yeah, she and, seems so fragile yeah. in many ways. And um, she's very like very light skin. She's yeah. got does she have like super blue eyes? I'm trying to think of what her eyes look like. I, I can't feel remember. like they're, they're very, very expressive. Light. Yeah. Um so anyway, she has such a such a kind of singular look to her. I think that they either did a photo shoot or maybe she was in a movie and I'm forgetting what movie it was where she was Bob Dylan. Not Bob Dylan, what am I saying? David Bowie. <laughs> David Bowie. Okay, yes. You're, You're probably, thinking of Kate Blanchett in, what is it, I'm Not There? Yeah. Or no, I'm Still Here. Uh, which one? I don't remember. One is the Joaquin Phoenix thing. I think that's I'm Still Here. And I think yeah, I'm I think Not right. There is the Bob Dylan thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. All I have to say, um, they did something where she looked very much like David Bowie, and yeah. that's kind of fun. Not surprising at all. Yeah. But... Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so 
I so I didn't know because I didn't know wasn't familiar with his quote unquote genre work. I didn't really know what to expect, mm-hmm. and to me, it seemed like a weird combination, especially because vampires have become like a because of what they are now in our yeah. media culture. It's like a kind of a buzzword almost. Yeah. Um. So that'd be interesting to see a different treatment of that. Yeah. Um. I'd say I th- I think I I think of the movie as like a three to three and a half star movie. Like I liked it out of five. Okay. Um. So, yeah, there was a lot that I liked in it. Like I said, the performances I liked. Um. And I think some of the things that it opens up to talk about are really interesting. So I, yeah. and we'll get into that later. Um. But there were certain elements that I didn't like that i disliked about it honestly um i feel like it doesn't treat some of the practicalities of the fact that they are hundreds if not thousands of years old right um i think there's some really cool stuff in exploring what that means and what that does to people but i think some of the nuts and bolts to it didn't really uh, didn't really land for me. I think I'm, I said to you afterwards, I got a feeling like sometimes they were just name dropping. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I guess as long as we're getting into this, uh, yeah, what is interesting. You brought up the nuts and bolts because the nuts and bolts of them being vampires and the day to day of that, that landed completely for me. Yes. Yeah. The nuts and bolts of them living thousands of years or hundreds or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a little a little rough for a me. A little shakier, um, yeah. Because one of the things because they make it clear that like one or the other or both at some point knew any number of artists and stuff throughout mm-hmm. history. And um and that's interesting, uh, but there's a few things that I have a problem with from a from a practical standpoint. Um, David and I did an episode of Battleship Pretension inspired by this film Hmm. in which we talked about character as metaphor Hmm. Um, and that you can't bring a lot of practicality into it because of what they're meant to represent instead of what they actually uh, are, you know, supposed to be uh, practically in the the film. So uh, as a metaphor, I absolutely understand I understand the name dropping. I understand the the idea that in the, in a Forrest Gumpian way, they happen to always be where the great art is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would it makes sense that these characters are artistically minded, so they would go wherever the Renaissance was. So that's that's neat. But just because you're there doesn't mean you're going to be able to cozy up with the popular artist, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and so, but yeah, one of the things is the way they talk with each other about knowing certain um classical artists uh whether it be musically or or whatever you know when you talk to your wife or i talk to mine um you know at this point you and i both know some actors and some filmmakers that are uh certainly not probably not well known but are have had some success and it's kind of and there are times when it's kind of exciting like you know this person but after a while then you come to realize oh but i just know them as a person and that's great Mm -hmm. um but if I were to, if I'm talking to my wife about it, I'm not going to, I don't say their whole name. I just talk about them mm-hmm. 
And it's one of those things like I'll never forget. There's a, a, a quote by a comedian, Todd Glass, in which he was talking about certain types of comedians and the way they play up their anger. Uh, and he said, I know you're only angry because we're watching. Hmm. And that idea of doing something just because we're watching, mm-hmm. just because you have an audience, um, that's something that I have sort of uh, really adopted uh, when approaching certain movies and TV shows. And the way they talk about the people in their past, they talk about them as if we're watching. It seems like maybe the next, it, it could almost be that the very next moment they turn to the camera and wink. Yeah, very much so. And, and when I say that that's, that seems a bit beneath Jim Jarmusch. That's what I mean. I think he's yeah. usually a much more subtle writer. I, I agree. That's yeah. The, the one, maybe so that people can know what I'm talking about. The one instance that bothered me the very most was, uh, involved the character of Marlowe, mm-hmm. who is, I think we're supposed to believe that he's the, uh, author from the, the author and playwright, yeah. Christopher Marlowe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who wrote uh, uh, Dr. Faustus? Yes. Yeah. Um, do they ever say that that's his first name, or do they just imply it the whole movie? Uh, she might refer to him as... I, you know what? I don't remember, but given the character's attitude towards Shakespeare, that's, it's a fair amount. It's a fair assumption. That yes, and that's the one moment that I like the least of all of this type of stuff that we're talking about. There's a, a moment where he says something very disparaging about Shakespeare and then indicates a picture of Shakespeare that he has on his wall. Yeah. Um, that I believe he like throws darts at or something like that. I don't think there were darts in it. I think it was just like, it's just a picture. There? He just had a picture there and yeah. he was complaining about him and like how much he disliked him and disliked the, the thought that some disliked him because he Shakespeare took credit for some of his plays. Or yeah, it was, like that. it was heavily implied that he wrote a lot of Shakespeare's best plays. Right, which like is that. a that whole thing bothers me when people say that because I think it's kind of a dumb conspiracy theory that with people that need to that feel like they need to make history more interesting. But, I mean, um, the thing that I'm always interested in is the idea that Christopher Marlowe would have been Shakespeare viewed as Shakespeare's equal in quality had he not died at a young, at a young age. Right. So, yeah. and I've read uh, Faustus, and uh, it's it's Doctor Faustus, right? It's not simply Faust. Yeah, because there's there's like a bunch of different versions. Yeah. I think I never quite the recall. German novel, the Goethe one, is Faust. Okay, I think Marlowe's is Doctor Faustus. Okay, and then there's other there's other versions of it. Right. Anyway, but I've read Doctor Faustus, and it's great. It's yeah. really great. Yeah. So, like, that's an interesting idea. But the suggestion that uh, such a throwaway thing about I really wrote Shakespeare's plays and then to point to a picture of him that he has on his wall for some reason, not, even though he hates him, yeah, seems like one of those yeah. wink at you moments. And it just and that especially, you know, it's a it's a film that among other things it does celebrate art. It celebrates the idea of un, of uncompromising art, and that's great. But in doing so, I mean, unless of course Jim Jarmusch is unless he does believe the conspiracy yeah. that Christopher Marlowe was the actual author in some way, shape or form mm-hmm. of a lot of Shakespeare's plays. If he believes that, then okay, I guess this is a way that he's putting that out there. And frankly, it does have the clunky quality of someone wanting to incorporate themselves and their own beliefs into something. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, he's usually a better writer than that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, 
but let's say he doesn't believe that and just thought this would be like a clever thing. Okay, fair enough. Except again, this is a film that's meant to celebrate art, and now he's denigrating one of the greatest artists of all time. Right? You know, I, I don't necessarily love Shakespeare. I, I don't necessarily love everything that Shakespeare wrote, but mm. of course, some of his stuff is absolutely astounding. And so, it just seems somehow counterintuitive to what the film is ostensibly trying to do. Yeah, and um, then at the for, sake- the for the sake of of cleverness, perhaps. Right. So I feel like that's the one that's the one side of what those things do. And then the other one is just I think you kind of talked about it earlier, but just the the logic of somebody actually saying something like that. Yeah. Who actually had a connection with these people. And I think the logic of him saying that and having that picture doesn't add up with. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't really make sense. Yeah. So and that's that's probably my major problem with the film. I think it is. I think other than that, I, I think some of their I think some of the conclusions that they are coming to i don't necessarily agree with which we'll get to in the thematic version uh version uh section of the film uh, (laughs) of the film of the podcast sorry the thematic version of the film or the thematic section of the podcast you'd think they uh that i would know the difference but i don't anymore i I like like to to view this as a film i like to think that there's a thematic version of the podcast like this this one It's, it's just the, it's all surface yeah that version <laughs> that's for one group of people and then there's one that's just the thematics uh yeah i mean i guess that you know our best of pictures is uh not thematic yeah sometimes sometimes it, it, it gets is, I there guess. um so okay uh i do want to go into maybe some of the details about the about the filmmaking uh like i said um one of the things that i like was the nuts and bolts of being a vampire and one of the things and you don't realize it until or at least i didn't it didn't i didn't consciously realize it until like halfway through the film which is it it takes place at night it's always nighttime Mm -hmm. yeah and it took me a while to realize why is it always nighttime right vampire he's a vampire (laughs) he cannot go out during the day and so he's driving around and there's all these places that he would like to visit but they're not open, mm. you know, yeah. um, you know, like, uh, the site of original, some original Motown recordings and he mm-hmm. would love to visit it, except it's not open. Yeah. And he's a big fan of, he and his wife are a big fan of music, are big fans of music. And so they can't do it. And so it really, and he and his wife are separated, uh, not like separated, like they want to get divorced or something like that. Mm. But, um, but they just happen to be in different places and, and maybe they have been for a hundred years. Who yeah. Knows? Who knows? I don't, do they ever specify the amount of time they say like, it's been a while, it's but been for someone while, yeah. who's been around since the 1300s or something. Yeah, it could be, it, it could be a while. while. And so, uh, so his life does seem genuinely very lonely. And I do, I do appreciate the setting, which is Detroit. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about Detroit at this point, uh, it is, Maybe not the only American city that is shrinking, but it might be. It might be the only major American city above a certain population that is shrinking. Mm-hmm. Um, every other city is just constantly growing, but Detroit is going away. Yeah, there are there are you know just buildings that are just abandoned, mm-hmm. and there's and there there are some parts of the city I've I've been reading up on this there are parts of the city where they're just wild dogs running around mm-hmm. and no and no one's in danger because there's no one around <laughs> and there's also no one to stop these wild dogs from attacking anybody not that you have to worry about it because it's just a bunch of empty houses it's a very it's a very sad idea mm-hmm. and 
and it's a perfect picture of and given what the film has to say about humanity mm-hmm. play, putting it in detroit placing uh setting it in detroit which used to be this symbol specifically of, in america this symbol of uh technological progress industry and industry yeah. and to have that going away it just it wind that winds up being a nice metaphor for humanity and the fact that these characters have been around for all of it um See, like, that's the Jim Jarmusch that I'm used to. Mm-hmm. That's the Jim Jarmusch who – and they do address – they address what Detroit has been. They they have a certain degree of optimism about what, what it could be again. Um, but it's – very seldom does he just come out and just say everything he's thinking. Mm-hmm. They don't say, you know, in a way, this is a – it's a perfect microcosm of humanity. They don't say that. <laughs> um, and so – Everything having to do with that, I thought was great, and I thought that's the Jim Jarmish I know, um, and just uh, and also non, not surprisingly, the way he uses music is something that I have always responded to. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a wonderful soundtrack. Uh, some pieces are original for the film, and some are not. But uh, I remember um, John Lurie, who's a frequent collaborator with uh, Jim Jarmish, or at least he used to be. He um, he made a TV series called Fishing with John, and there is a, a a little musical sting in there that he referred to as a, a freezing guitar, hmm. and it was just and it and somehow is the perfect way of of looking at it, or a perfect way of phrasing it because it just a freezing guitar it just sounds desolate and simple and lonely and. That's what a lot of the score, even though it's a bit more ornate at times, um, that's what the score to Only Lovers Left Alive feels like. It feels like just a just this freezing guitar thing. Yeah, and um, and a lot of it feels kind of like a like a funeral march or like a fugue. Yes, yeah, yeah a, a a particularly cool one because yeah. not unlike a lot of his other films, these characters are very cool and they are. Um, and they i'm not sure if they're actually image obsessed or if it's just their images are such that they don't have to be um so yeah uh so as far as how it's shot and and again um sometimes in his past films he locks his camera down but this in this one the camera tends to um glide over things mm-hmm. um whether it be the city or or the characters or whatever like it's a very I'm not sure if I'd say active camera. That makes it sound a bit more kinetic. But it's a very, I don't know, how would you describe it? Almost like flowing. That's Yeah, fluid maybe. Fluid is a yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's it, it does seem like there's more movement to it. And, and oddly, I feel like there's a vibrancy to the look mm-hmm. that is intentionally not present in some of his other films. Yeah. Which is... Maybe uh, I don't know if that's purposefully counter to the thematic elements of the film. If it's yeah. purposefully that um, we see a camera, we, we have a moving camera, and we have a visually, and I feel like there's a lot of color in in places. In places, yes. Um, and so maybe those that's meant to stand in contrast to a life of a life where the world is decaying around them. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of metaphorical and and real death around them and the characters themselves you know pale white skin but they're they dress in 
you know, black and they wear sunglasses. And so it's a very, in many cases, it's a very black and white and gray world. And so occasionally you get these, as tends to happen in vampire movies, you get these splashes of gray, uh, sorry, gray <laughs> splashes of red, um, both with blood and, and otherwise. And so, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really visually gorgeous, or maybe not gorgeous, but striking. It's a striking film. I yeah, I feel like it's more visually striking than some of his other films that I've seen, and I haven't seen as many as you have. But the ones that I can remember, especially because some of them are black and white, like yeah. uh, Stranger Than Stranger Than Stranger Than Paradise, Paradise. And Down by Law, and uh, Dead Man are all black mm-hmm. and white. Yeah. Um, there's actually only one film of his I have not seen, which is The Limits of Control, which I've heard mm. is actually among his worst. Uh, oh, really? I feel like I should still watch it. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've seen all of them. Uh, I don't think I've seen per- his first, his absolute first film, Permanent Vacation, mm. which is, it's one of those where it's, it is officially his first film, but it's also kind of almost a student film. Oh, okay. Um, it's one of those types of things. But, um, but yeah, and, this is this is maybe I would venture to say this is along with maybe Dead Man uh, among his most striking hmm. uh, films visually, and that's not to imply that his other films are not. They are, right. but uh, this one he seems to rather because in in a lot of his other films he seems to be trying to uh, capture the beauty of a place, whereas this he seems to be genuinely manipulating mm-hmm. uh, the place and camera filters and that sort of thing in order to create a beauty that maybe that isn't there or enhance something that is, but Mm -hmm. needs a little bit of enhancement for uh, the viewers to really appreciate it. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And just the way the locations he finds, it's just boy, oh boy, it's, it's a film that I think I highly recommend. And, and just from a visual standpoint, if you're a, if you're a a film lover, I Mm -hmm. think you will enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah. I think, a lot of uh, existing or aspiring cinematographers or directors of photography could enjoy a lot in this. Yes, absolutely. So I'm trying to think what else we could uh, talk about. I I do feel like maybe we didn't do a, a great job of talking about the performances. I, we talked about certain elements of, of the actors that we like. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, you mentioned Tom Hiddleston and that he's known primarily as Loki in the marvel cinematic universe but uh he's he's shown up in a couple things here and there but i do really like what he brings to this performance yeah um because he really we start to take on his his emotions which are he just seems dis uh, disillusioned and and just you know the the idea of disenchanted is the word that i was trying to think of earlier okay uh we were in the car trying to figure out what the, what the word was going to be. Yeah. It's just, you know, one thing that we said is that I feel like Jarmusch kind of drops the ball on the practicalities of being a vampire living for a long time. As far as the emotions, I think he's got it. Um, you have to feel like there's a certain degree. You would feel a certain degree of futility if you Mm -hmm. were alive for thousands of years and you saw, I mean, what does that mean? It means you've seen, horrible wars you've seen genocide you've seen all these things and you just keep going and humanity keeps going Mm -hmm. and start and after a while i feel like you would just cease to care after a certain point and then you're just living in in a world that's very cold and i don't know i i really get that feeling from him that he's just sort of drifting 
aimless. Yeah. I feel like he's deeply pessimistic, and I mm-hmm. I go back and forth on how much the film wants to say, yeah, he's right to be that pessimistic. Because she, on the other hand, is kind of... She agrees with him on some points, but mm-hmm. she all, she definitely has a more optimistic outlook on life. Yeah. Like She's one who seems to, to travel more still. Like yeah. She likes to still see the world. There seems to still be a lot that she wants to enjoy about the world. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that she is older than he is. She's an older yes. vampire than he is. She might be... She might be the one that turned him. Uh, yeah, yeah. And don't we... I feel like... The suggestion is that he has been alive or around since maybe the 1700s, maybe 1800s, and that she seems to have been around like since maybe the Middle Ages. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I do know that she's been around much longer than he has. Definitely hundreds of years. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at it that way, um, she does seem certainly they are their husband and wife. They love each other. They're equals in that respect. But there are times when she seems like a mother and he seems like a teenager. Yeah. And she, she, the, the filmmaker is not unaware of that. Right. I think they use that. And I think she, both as an actress and as a character uses that built in authority over him. Yeah. Without it becoming, uh, uh, I like that it doesn't become a conflict. I feel like that would be less interesting if they right. had arguments about her thinking that she's better than him or something like that. Cause they're past that point. Yeah. And That's I, another thing that I like about their dynamic is that they're past a lot of things because right. it's been so long. Yeah. And, uh, and one thing that I like is, uh, just knowing when to introduce, This is something that I think Jim Jarmusch has always been good at, which is once we've gotten used to what the film is, he will introduce a new element that really uh, breathes life into it. Not Mm -hmm. that you're getting bored, but you're growing accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in Down by Law, it's Tom Waits and John Lurie, and they wind up in a prison cell together, and you feel like, okay, I kind of got this. Roberto Benigni shows up, and suddenly it's just, it's like a whole new film. Um, that's a movie that I own, but I haven't seen yet. I, I've got the Criterion. You haven't seen Blu-ray it? Of it? I know. Oh boy. I think I might watch it soon actually. Cause I just got that new, uh, I got Itu Mama Tambien and mm-hmm. I was like, there's a few Criterion ones that I own, but I haven't seen yet. And I think I should watch those first. And yeah. I've got a first on the list. few of those myself. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, let, let me know. Maybe I'll, uh, watch it with you. Cause I haven't yeah. seen it in a while and I bet it's, I bet it's gorgeous on yeah. Blu-ray. Cause it's, it, that one is shot really well. Cool. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and in this you have, you have so the characters' names are appropriately Adam and Eve, um, and you get Adam, and he's just kind of going through life. He's interacting with some people here and there, not really. Uh, and then just when you start and get used to that, then Eve comes to visit him, and then you get used to the two of them. Uh, and then uh, a character named uh, Ava, played by Mia Wajakowska. I've heard I've heard a lot of different pronunciations, and it always bothers me. <laughs> But she shows up and she is, you know, they are, <laughs> this is a weird thing to say, they're responsible vampires. They don't bite people. <laughs> they don't go after, you know, they still drink blood because they have to, but they get blood from like a blood bank. Um, and so nobody is being hurt. They're not taking the blood from anybody. Uh, she shows up and she is reckless and she is predatory and she's like, there's a, when she shows up, like I just, I tense up, uh, 
because and as they do they don't like her either they don't i, I you're not even 100 percent sure what her relationship to yeah, them is like they, they she refer, seems like a younger sister kind of and i think they almost ref, don't they even refer at one point to her as being eve's sister i i think so but but I who think, knows what that even means right with them like their yeah. connections are very different than what we would expect yeah. uh, because the age thing isn't an isn't a uh, an element anymore and I think when they first start mentioning her, I don't think I think that's before you know what connection she has to them at all. So right. I was almost suspecting maybe she was like a past lover of Adams right. or something like that. Um, but then, yeah, she, it's funny that you mentioned the familiar familial relationship because they almost have to treat her like a daughter when she when she yeah. arrives yeah. because they're the responsible ones and she isn't. Yeah, and it's uh, and her and her being there again like it reminds you in case you, and of course you don't forget but it reminds you that we are dealing with vampires that's one of the things that i do like about the film is that while while the vampirism is sort of a common denominator and thus something that can sort of just be taken for granted and then pushed to the, to the side and then you look at the specifics of these characters what i do like is that jarmish still says no they are vampires and all the stuff you've heard about vampires is still true. They cannot go out during the day. They have to drink blood. And they found a way to do it in a way that doesn't really interfere with humanity, but not all of them have. Like, mm-hmm. that's a thing that I really appreciate that he does, that that the vampirism isn't merely a gimmick, uh, that it is a... a a fact of these people's mm-hmm. lives. And so, and made in my opinion, most obvious with, uh, with the Ava character. Yeah. Um, I also like John hurt as Marlowe, whatever I might think of the character himself. I like the way he plays him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also his, his performance and, and the casting of John hurt speaks sort of to what you and I were talking about with Nosferatu, this idea that, I mean, he's been, a vampire for a while, you're not a hundred percent sure if he was this old when he became one, Mm -hmm. but he certainly does seem to be aging. Yeah. And you're not really sure what that means. Mm -hmm. And he seems to be, he seems to want to die. Yeah. Um, or at least he seems to be okay with the idea of dying. And so, uh, and that reminds me of like a count Orlock type. Um, not that Orlock ever really wanted to die, but just the idea that he's just, he's just kind of wasting away a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I like, and that's not explored a lot, but it's just sort of hinted at, yeah. which I like There's pieces of it in there. So yeah, it's in many ways, again, it's not perfect. There are some writing things that sort of bother us, but even, even then, like as, as David was saying, if you approach the characters primarily as metaphors, so, then that actually sort of papers over some of our problems with it. Um, except, you know, it's, to me, the most effective metaphorical characters are ones that still work 100% as characters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's just a personal preference. And so, uh, so I think we'll move on because you, you, you started to talk about the, the optimism and pessimism of Adam and Eve. And one of the things that it sort of bothered me about the film, kind of, uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, maybe I'll bounce it off of you. The way they talk about humanity. Now, they do save some praise for a, f- a select few, whether they be scientists, 
you know, like they mentioned Charles Darwin, mm-hmm. uh, and whether it be scientists or musicians or, you know, whatever they do, ha- there are a select few humans that they have a genuine respect for, but by and large, they refer to humans as zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand why they, you know, if you've lived thousands of years, um, and you see, you gain a certain degree of perspective on humanity in general. And so when you see what people fixate on, um, and realize, wow, they're really focusing on something that does not matter. They're not even seeing what matters. Then, okay, you can kind of derive the idea of zombie from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found in it, I found a certain degree of, uh, would you say misanthropy or misanthropy? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I don't know which is correct. Okay, well, everyone, you know what I mean. Uh, there, <laughs> There's... You know, and Jim Jarmusch is getting older now. He's, um, I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but he must, he certainly must be in his fifties, maybe even early sixties, but I think mm-hmm. probably fifties. Yeah. Um, you know, and one thing that I've found in like a number of artists is as they get older, some of them wind up having a very specific view of life that is mostly benevolent, mm-hmm. but others, um, Kind of have a bitterness that comes out yeah. in their old age. Yeah, like, I feel like I'm seeing that even with Woody Allen, who's oh yeah, who's an actor that makes or sorry, who's a director that makes comedies. Um, but especially recently, I felt like there's been more of an edge, more of a bitterness to his movies, oh, even if they Blue have Jasmine. happy endings. Yeah, Blue Jasmine is yeah. is rough watching, and and occasionally you get like a, a Midnight in Paris. Yeah. But even that, I think, has notes of bitterness in it. I oh think sure, like that that scene in Midnight in Paris where. They go back to the turn of the century, I think it is, when mm-hmm. it's, it's where she wants to go. Right. That was one of the saddest scenes I think I've ever seen in one of his movies, because it all yeah. seems so futile at yeah. that moment. Yeah, and when you think, and actually, if you think about the, the, the larger point of the film, it's almost like an old man saying, you know, I wish... When I was younger, I used to wish I could do this, but that would have been bad, too. It's yeah. always going to be it's, bad. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> recognizing know? that you... That uh, your nostalgia for a time past is e- even that is illegitimate. Yeah, and there is no good time past. And I know that uh, you know I'm I know a number of stand-up comedians, and I and I listen to a lot of stand-up comedy podcasts. And there are people that were big fans of George Carlin, and he always had a cynicism to him. Yeah, but he had a cynicism in a way. And of course, there are a lot of things that he said that I don't agree with. But he always wanted to challenge his audience and in a way that maybe sort of made a difference. And he certainly did. Like there are a lot of people that listen to George Carlin the way that he talked about, you know, religion and and that sort of thing. And it affected them and they thought, you know what, he might be right. But even those people talked about how in his old age, specifically after his wife passed away, he still did his comedy specials. He was still kind of funny, but there was a genuine – he wasn't trying to make a difference anymore. He was just – angry and bitter and it came through it didn't seem like the the young firebrand anymore now it just seemed like just an old man just raging at the world yeah and i'm not sure if i would say that this is how jim jarmish is but uh but there is a you know we are meant to side with adam and eve in this in this film because they they're the ones with the most perspective and they are the ones who i think for the most part view humanity with contempt and of course and even the ones that they like they wind up saying 
these are the these were like the visionaries and people didn't even like and people didn't like them Mm -hmm. and so um so it's it winds up being kind of it's weird because i'm somebody who has a fairly pessimistic view of humanity beyond the mere christian fallenness aspect Mm -hmm. um and yet somehow i felt uncomfortable with the way these characters viewed humanity partially because there seemed to be a real for lack of a better term not merely contempt but also a certain um haughtiness and maybe even a condescension yes i don't know what do you think of that i feel like this movie maybe unintentionally is about hipsters um, there's an argument to be made for that. Yeah. And I, I haven't read a lot on it. So maybe other people have, have expanded on, expounded on that idea a little bit more than I have, but, uh, you see them as people who are removed, are cool, mm-hmm. who have very specific tastes about what they think is good. Yeah. Um, they're into the arts, uh, but they look down on the bulk of humanity yeah. and they complain about how people are blind followers or they complain about how people are, uh, um, miss the, the good things yeah. uh, that are available out to them and kind of hold themselves in a higher regard, yeah. which I think is a pretty, I think that's pretty uh, yeah. similar to the hipster mentality. So then that leads me to the question, are how are we meant to look at that? How does the filmmaker want us to look at that? Well, it's hard to say. Yeah, because well, because oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say there's two. There's moments when they seem to disagree with each other, mm-hmm. and those are the times that I think we're meant to question it a little bit. Um, for instance, I think isn't there a point when she brings up the fact that I feel like somebody brings up the fact that he has all these pictures of. Um, his heroes on the wall. Right. Like they're all humans. They're all yeah. some of these zombies. Yeah. Um, now I think it goes on further to say that like, well, these were the good ones, but uh, I feel like the point is made at some point that you can't write off humanity because there are all these good pieces of it. And, and that even he recognizes that. Um, but then at the same time, there are moments when they seem to agree about humanity in general. And those are the moments that I've, that's the stuff that I find a little bit more confusing in the film. I, I can't decide whether I, I guess I can't decide what exactly it's trying to say, like which side it's on mm-hmm. and how we're meant to uh, respond to that. Well, and I think uh, being familiar with, uh, I'd say most of Jim Jarmusch's uh, filmography, um, I, I certainly know I have an opinion about the things that he explores. Uh, he, there's a, he is kind of a hipster himself. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a lot of his films, he often seems to explore both positively and negatively what it is to be cool. Yeah. Um, because in some cases, you know, you just can't help but look at the way somebody dresses, the way they act, and think, "Man, I wish I could be that." Yeah. But then he also explores that some of some of the, these cool characters in his films, they are very aware of how they come across, and they work very hard on it, and 
the same thing that keeps them so cool also keeps them very lonely. Yeah. Uh, Down by law especially has a lot of that. Hmm. And so and I think you could kind of see that in this one, especially with that. There's a character we haven't really talked about that much yet who uh, Anton, is it Yelkin or Yelchin? Uh, Yelchin, I think. Yelchin, okay. Um, he plays kind of a, an ass, not an assistant, but a guy who's doing some work for Adam. Yeah. He comes to his house. He brings him uh, hard to find things. Um, but he's one who definitely is looking from the outside and not knowing what Adam is finds him super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I, I wonder if, if perhaps if I'm being, if I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, which you know, he's a filmmaker that I really love. So I'm inclined to do that. Um, that he is trying to figure out where now that he's older and he's seen in his life, some of the rougher aspects of humanity, you know, I mean, if let's see, like if you're 55 now, that means you've lived, I look it up. He's 61. So what was that? He's 61. He is 61. You look that. Okay. So he's 61 now. So that means, okay, so let's see. Uh, probably, uh, early memory, Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then, uh, uh, a depression and then various wars in the middle east 911 um i mean <laughs> and and especially in this country just like a real polarized uh attitude you know you look at that and you think yeah all right i think i'm i think i'm done i think i'm not super thrilled with things um but then also recognizing that you're still a part of it you're not actually above it no matter how much perspective you think you have this film does if i'm if i'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that i'd then i would say this is a film that explores both sides of it you know and i mean you yourself said that you know adam is a bit more pessimistic eve is a bit more optimistic but but both of them is still acknowledged that like humanity just lacks perspective right um and so uh so that's if i'm giving him the him the benefit of the doubt but there is definitely, I do think, there is still a tone of of condescension yeah. uh, that makes me a, a bit uncomfortable because it just feels uh, almost like a holier-than-thou type of thing. Yeah, I think even if if uh, even if the in the best case scenario he's saying humanity doesn't have perspective, yeah, there's an implicit suggestion that he does have perspective, right? It's, it's not unlike the person not to, this is not the theme of the episode, by the way. Um, not unlike the person who says, Hey, all the religions are, are wrong, it, but they're also all right. You know, it doesn't matter what you, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something, you know, nobody's right. And that sounds good, uh, in a way, but what you're ultimately saying, what that person's ultimately saying is that they're right. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody says my faith is the only one that's right, and then you're someone who says, no, 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 that's incorrect, then that person's still asserting that they're right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you need to, and if you're saying that people have a lack of perspective, the only way to know that is if you are standing a little bit above everybody and you have a a better, a higher perspective. And it's weird that sometimes that perspective is born out of an idealism. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I wonder if that's something that, that, 
is happening with Jarmusch as a filmmaker. Maybe he was someone who was more idealistic as a younger man. But a lot of generally, you tend to see in a lot of people who have very strong, very high ideals, yeah. tend to later in life become depressed, become angry, and say no one understands the world the, the, the way that I understand it. Yeah, and they take that to mean everybody else is is dooming themselves to being wrong forever. And there's this, you know. I do think that if you look at his films, you actually find a great deal of affection Mm -hmm. for specifically, he makes movies very much about the U S about being an American. Um, yeah, even, which is weird because in his filmmaking style, there's a lot of European influence, but, but he makes movies about America, Americana and the things that he loves about it. He Mm -hmm. loves Memphis. He loves, you know, just, uh, the various places that uh, new Orleans is, is where, uh, down by law takes place. Mm. He shoots places that he loves. Detroit uh, mm-hmm. is another one. And he, you get the impression after a while, it's, he just loves, he loves this country and he wants to explore what that love is. You look at this and you start to look at um, the people that, uh, that Adam idolizes and you, you get a real strong sense of Jim Jarmusch's like longing for this thing that he's been maybe searching for his whole life only to discover uh, it might not actually be there. Yeah. This thing that I, that maybe used to exist and maybe it didn't, maybe it was never there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and I think there's a real idealism there. A yeah. real, maybe not idealism in his case, maybe not idealism so much as a romanticism. Yeah. Um, I think he tends to romanticize the U S in a way that I think, uh, filmmakers and film lovers do, you know, we look back on, you know, film noir and we just think like ah what a wonderful time to live even though those characters are all miserable (laughs) so um so yeah it's you know there's a lot to this film i mean you and i may not love every aspect of it but there's a lot going on yeah and so one of the things i want to talk about is the way the film and the characters approach humanity i mean Mm -hmm. they call people zombies uh there's a moment unfortunately okay well the very nature of this quote is a spoiler. So I apologize, everybody. I'm, I'm about to spoil an aspect of only lovers left alive. Feel free to skip ahead. I don't know. Three minutes. Uh, that's probably all, all we'll need. Uh, so I mentioned the Ava character and then you talked about the Ian character. Ava's a vampire. Ian played by Anton Yelchin. He is not a vampire. He's a regular guy. He does not know that Adam is a vampire. Mm-hmm. He just thinks he's a reclusive musician. And, and, Ian's a, he's a good guy, you know, well-meaning and all that. Uh, and then Ava, uh, kills him, uh, and drinks his blood. And there's two options. She, you either, she, you know, you can, if you're a vampire, you can like drain somebody's blood completely and they are dead. Mm-hmm. Or you drain just a, you drain a little bit and then they turn into vampires. Yeah. Uh, she does not stop. She doesn't know when to stop. And Ian is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, And when Adam sees this, he says, you drank Ian, which is kind of an amusing moment, but it's also somehow it just makes me feel like it just kind of gets my hackles up a little bit uh, (laughs) because it's just like, you can't even say killed Mm -hmm. killed means that there's no life anymore. Whereas you drank Ian implies that he was only ever there as a beverage (laughs) that you drank all of. And so, so little things like that, which I think is, is is observant on the part of Jim Jarmusch that, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have the perspective of these characters, you will start to see humanity and humans as very finite. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I, I like that, but 
between stuff like that and just the way they talk about humans, there does seem to be like they they wish humanity was one way, but they don't really think it's that way. And then by the end, uh, they wind up having to embrace their vampirism in all its glory. Hmm. Um, and so what I wanted to talk about is that anytime you have somebody standing outside humanity and looking at it, uh, then that means that the filmmaker in some way, shape or form is putting out a sort of treatise on humanity. Uh, and so I wanted to bring up, uh, the 1951 version of the day the earth stood still directed by Robert Wise a uh, remarkably capable and talented direct director that for some reason no one will ever say is a wonderful director. Like yeah, no what one else will, did he make? He made West Side Story. Okay. He edited Citizen Kane. Uh, he's done a lot. And yeah. those are off the top of my head. I know he's done a lot more. And West Side Story won Best Pictures. So. Yeah. And he won, I think, Best Director. But it's yeah. just interesting how he's just not one of those directors that people remember. That people name. remember. Even, yeah. even film people don't remember. Yeah. He's not unlike... Um, you know, your favorite film of all time is Casablanca. People mm. tend not to think of Michael Curtiz. Yeah. They'll think of his movies. They'll think of Casablanca and the adventures of Robin hood. Mm-hmm. Um, and others I'm sure, but, uh, some big comedy that he made that I'm forgetting now. Okay. But yeah, yeah. it's just, but they won't think of him. I think, I think like the auteur theory is really at play. And so you get like something of a journeyman like him or like a Robert Wise and, and people remember the movies, but maybe not the, the director, but, mm-hmm. um, so the day the earth stood still, it's about an alien who comes to earth and uh, it's something of a Christ analogy, by the way. Um, he, this alien looks like a person. He gets involved in uh, humanity. He goes by the name, Mr. Carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. There's mm-hmm. another bit of Christ analogy for you. Um, and ultimately what it is, is he is trying to see what humanity is all about because he's there for a specific mission, which is to warn humanity that if they don't sh- if they don't shape up because this was right in the middle of the cold war nuclear uh capabilities were just constantly being built up you know this is 1951 uh, you know only a few years after uh the atomic bomb was dropped twice um and so he's basically saying hey uh we aliens, we see where you guys are headed and it's going to endanger all of us. So either get your act together or we're going to kill you. <laughs> um, and so that, and that seems very cynical. Um, but there's something about the idea of giving humanity a chance of saying, if you don't shape up, this will happen. It could just say, they're going to do this anyway. We know where they're headed. Let's, Let's blow them up and them. save ourselves. Yeah. And there, because if they come and if, as in this situation, the aliens come and give a chance to say, you need to do something differently, then they are in a way admitting that there is something in humanity worth saving. There's right. a reason that humans should still be around. There's a worth to them. Right. Whereas uh, the other, the other opinion is to just say, this is, <laughs> the, the totally kind of unfeeling pragmatic opinion is to yeah. be like, well, this is easier. Well, and destroy the, them. And the word that comes up is irredeemable. Mm-hmm. You kill something that is irredeemable. It cannot change ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but by him even showing up and, and saying you need to make this choice. Now, admittedly there's a, you know, terrible consequences if you make the wrong one, but the very fact that he leaves it in their hands means that there's a certain degree of faith that humanity can do this if given the proper guidance and admittedly the proper incentive. Um, 
And so uh, I will quote a line from the movie Seven. It is the last line in which uh, uh, Morgan Freeman's character says, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Now, that may be a little bit too dark of a quote, but um, but that is sort of from a Christian standpoint. You know, the last few episodes, we've talked about uh, the world and how we shouldn't necessarily uh, – you know, cave into the temptations of the world and the promises of the world that we need to separate ourselves from the world. Um, but that doesn't mean, and we also have to, you know, we also acknowledge the brokenness of humanity and the fallenness of humanity. Like it's important to go in with your eyes wide open when approaching your fellow man and yourself, but we are not irredeemable. Um, you know, we are not merely drinks for vampires. We are not merely zombies. We are not merely warmongers that deserve to have our planet blown up. You know, mm-hmm. there is value in us. Now, as Christians, we believe that we are valuable because God values us. It's the, mm-hmm. the things uh, are simultaneous. It's not, yeah. we're valuable and thus God values us. Yeah. It's, I think we're valuable because God values us. Exactly. And so, um, you know, not unlike, I mean, you look at anything that people collect Mm -hmm. and there's some stuff that doesn't have inherent value, except the people that think that it is valuable. Suddenly it becomes that they create value for it. Yeah. And so, um, so I wanted to, uh, here's a couple of quotes from the day the earth stood still. Um, the main, the, the alien Klaatu, um, he says, we have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, by the way, is yeah. one of the things I'm thinking <laughs> of. Um, and then here is uh, uh, part of a, a longer monologue in which he's talking, when he says we, he's talking about his alien race. Uh, we do not pretend to achieve perfection, but we do have a system and it works. I came here to give you these facts. It is no concern of ours how you run your planet. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. Now, of course, that is a very cut and dry kind of thing. Now, I don't want to draw a clear line between that and Christianity because then that's purely a fear-based thing. Mm-hmm. Um what I want to focus on is the chance that he is giving mm-hmm. that he comes down and frankly, and it's, you know, I think one of the reasons that he comes down is like, he wants to sample humanity and see if there's even the possibility that they might change their course. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in itself implies, uh, faith, uh, mm-hmm. in, in humanity and, you know, not unlike, now, of course, Jesus didn't necessarily come here to figure out whether we could be redeemed, but he still, you know, came down to our level, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and we keep talking about like Adam and Eve in Only Lovers Left Alive as being on a higher level of perspective, yeah. and they never really feel like they should descend. Right. Um, and thus, I whereas feel like, Jesus knows that he, there's no reason for him right. to ascend, that he is above them and always will be in, yeah. in reality, but makes the choice to descend to that level. And so I will quote, uh, John nine thirty eight and 39. 
uh, it might, this might just be 38. Actually, I'm not sure. Uh, Jesus said for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Uh, and I will also jump to John three sixteen and 17. One of them you probably already know from all your sporting events, uh, <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so this is, so obviously we're not necessarily supposed to be part of, we're not supposed to be a part of the world as far as philosophically and all of that, but we're also not supposed to hold ourselves that are removed from it either. Like we are supposed to view the world and our fellow man with love and respect, recognizing that nobody is irredeemable and that God came to save this person just as much as he came to save you. Um, and that we are, that God has a love for humanity. I think one thing that certain Christians really focus on, maybe as a way of overcorrecting, because I think these days you run across a lot of Christians who really emphasize the grace aspect, as they should. Right. But they emphasize it to such an extent that everything becomes maybe a little uh, like really like touchy feely and like a feel good mm-hmm. kind of thing to the extent that the idea of justice and righteousness and holiness is no in obedience is no longer a big deal. And so it's like, okay, well there is the concept of holiness and obedience. That's a big part of it. But then I think in classic overcorrection, there are some churches that really emphasize. Um, I know that there are, I, I won't say who, but there are specific pastors who say like, it's like, Hey, we're crap. And I understand what they're trying to say, except we're not we're not crap. We're not garbage. We are fallen and we are broken. But crap is crap has no value. Garbage has no value. We have value because God values us. And so that's what I want to really come away from is finding that balance that like we are we have value. We still are deeply broken and we are in need of a savior, but, and thankfully we have one Mm -hmm. and we have one because we have that val we have value. So, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of scattered all over the, all over the place. Uh, how do you think I'm doing with this, (laughs) with this, uh, this theme? Um, I feel like I'm tracking with you. Okay. For the most part. So yeah, I, I, I think what we see in the first movie is people who, uh, look at humanity and see it as irredeemable, mm-hmm. maybe see a few moments yeah. of good in it, but that those are exceptions to the rule yeah. and that, uh, by and large, there's nothing to value in humanity. Yeah. Um, whereas in the second movie we see, uh, a, a power that has, I think a wider view. We see a person mm-hmm. of power that has a wider view of what humanity is and what humanity could be. And, um, though it sees all the bad in it still wants to, yeah. to redeem it and still wants to give it a chance to save itself. And I think that second one is more the way that God looks at us and I think should keep us from starting to look at the rest of humanity, the way that uh, Adam and Eve and only, only lovers left alive tend to look at humanity. And I feel like if you view these as stepping stones, only lovers left alive, as you said, condemning of humanity day the earth stood still we still we condemn you but we're not going to do anything yet but you got to shape up 
the next step is I even if you don't shape up like there's still a thing coming but even if you don't shape up I will take that for you mm-hmm. the condemnation that's reserved for you I'll take that for you mm-hmm. um and that's where the real redemption comes in mm-hmm. and so um so you know David stood still it's on the right track, but it's not there yet. Yeah. Klaatu, admittedly, there is a point where he does die, and then he comes back. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't necessarily die for humanity. Yeah. He dies as a result, um, but uh, but it's not exactly the same. So we need to look at that level of, of, of value, that we have enough value that even when we mess up, even though we are broken and fallen, that uh, Jesus still died for us. There is no condemnation. There's no condescension there. There's none yeah. of that. Jesus is still willing to sacrifice himself for those people that, uh, the people that, you know, if we're honest about it, probably aren't much worse than what Adam and Eve think they are. Oh, right. Absolutely. People are probably just as bad, but the response from God is so much different. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we will end there. Um, Next week, uh, Josh will not be here, so he will be replaced. Think about that terminology. Sure, I'll, I'll think about it while I'm out on the golf course. Absolutely. Looking for those castles. I'll find them. Um, he'll be replaced by uh, Reed Lackey. We'll be talking about The Conjuring, companion film yet to be determined. Uh, I Since I have not yet watched The Conjuring, I don't yet know what the companion film is going oh. to be. All right. So, um yeah, uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them in the comments section of the of this post on morethanonelesson.com. Uh, you can also email us, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com or Josh, Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can find me on Twitter at morelessons. You can find Josh at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. We do this every episode. Did, that, did it really take you by surprise? We do what every episode? Okay, fair enough. Uh, you can you also. <laughs> oh, oh, there's a hole in my ceiling. Hey, I found your cat. <laughs> I knew there's something scratching up there. Um, but yeah, uh, you can also like us on Facebook and, and uh, uh, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, a reminder once again to click on To Be a Man, A Christian's Guide to Being a Gentleman. Very interesting articles there uh, about all the things that it takes to, to be a man in 2014. And maybe 2015, but I can't tell the future. We'll see. You know, I Maybe by then we'll go with, you know... That vision of the future, which is, you know, we just wear the silver one piece with with the V-stripe and uh, blazers and tattoos are out. Who's Could to be. say? Could be. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. So, yeah, thank you all for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.